Well, good morning to you all on a lovely yet cold uh, sunny morning. Um, took me some time to get the ice off the car this morning, but I'm sure they're the same for you. Good morning and welcome to you all, um, both here in the church, but also those who are watching and listening at home uh, to the streaming of the service. Duncan will be continuing our preaching ser series from Acts with the theme of God's mission in unlikely places, uh, where we can take encouragement that God's mission is never derailed and reaches some surprising places. We will also be celebrating communion later in the service. Well, good morning. It is uh, lovely to have you with us today. And if you have a Bible to hand or a Bible app nearby, please do turn again with me to the book of Acts and to chapter 8. It's been a little while since we've been in the book of Acts, and by way of reminder, I simply want to say what we've seen already in this book is that time and time again, we see that the mission of God is unstoppable. Now, that maybe feels like an easy thing to say, but it really has been put to the test. The book of Acts recounts for us the, the, the start of the church, the Christian church, and time and time again, this has been tested. Is God really in charge of things here? When the leaders of the church were dragged before the authorities and told to stop speaking about Jesus or else, well, it tells us they kept speaking with boldness. When hypocrisy rose up within the church, some people pretended to be something they weren't. Well, in the aftermath of all of that, we're told more than ever believers were added to the Lord. When the church leaders were put in prison, given a good hiding, and told to stop speaking about Jesus, we were told they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. When tension arose within the church between different ethnic groups, they worked it through and we were told that the Word of, the God, of, the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied. None of these challenges that rose up along the way could derail God's mission to tell the world about Jesus. And the point that we've now reached in this book, well, the heat has turned up some more. In chapter 7, where we left off back in November, we, we, we read about Stephen And in particular, we read about the murder of Stephen, one of the early Christians, which opened up the floodgates of persecution against the followers of Jesus. That's how chapter 8 opened, which Adele read for us. Verse 2, there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered. Well, surely that's going to put a dent in things. Though they've overcome all of the previous tests, surely this is going to scupper the plans for the church. This passage only confirms what we've already seen. God is always in control of the mission. 
God is always in control of the mission. The church, which up till now had not moved out of Jerusalem, was not planning this. But when violent persecution came, the sort of persecution that requires a flight rather than a fight response, well, these believers, they run to safety. They're scattered all over. And Luke records for us that they're scattered through the regions. This is, uh, uh, this is verse 1 through the regions of Judea and Samaria. And it's little wonder because we're told there, verse 3, that this chap Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging them off to prison. Saul was the man who was there when Stephen was murdered. Saul was one of the guys who couldn't answer Stephen's wisdom and so instead helped to kill him. And in fact, later in the Bible, we have the privilege of of reading some of Saul's reflections on this time. Here's one of those reflections. He says, I punished them often and tried to make them blaspheme, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Well, what do you do when a guy like this is after you? You run, driven by raging fury, and it scatters the church. But God is amazing in His supreme control over all things. Yes, even over this murderous man. Because it is this violent, life-turned-upside-down kind of persecution that keeps the mission of the church right on track. God is always in control of the mission. So much so that the scattering of Christians out of Jerusalem was the means that God would use to advance the gospel beyond Jerusalem. Jesus told the apostles way back in Acts chapter 1, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And this is exactly what we read here. They're scattered to Judea and Samaria. The mission of the church is going on as Jesus said it would. Now, I don't suppose they expected this is how they would end up being sent into this new territory, but here God is always in control of the mission. These Christians' lives have been turned upside down. Their plans are in disarray, but God's mission is right on track. Because as these followers of Jesus are scattered, what do they do Verse 4, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. You see, wherever God's people were scattered is where the message of the good news about Jesus was scattered. It wasn't left behind in Jerusalem somewhere. They took it with them. And that needs to give us confidence today. God is always in control of the mission. Not just in these early days of the church, always. And he is especially in control of the mission when it's clear that we are not. And I don't think any of us would dare to deny that. Consider the last two years of your life. Plans that we had, hopes that we had, goals that we had, all of it turned on its head. And not a thing any one of us could do about it. 
Now, we could be despondent, or we could trust that the Lord might know better than us, and that He's able to use these things, even these painful things that we've gone through, to accomplish something far, far bigger. And the call to to the church today is the same call as it would be in Acts chapter 8 to be ready to allow such things, such life turmoil-like things, whether it's self-isolation for a fortnight or a broken down car or some other aspect of a viral pandemic, to, to see that in these things that none of us would choose, that none of us are prepared for, none of us have control over, that actually they are an opportunity for us to deepen our trust that God in His providence is still directing our paths just as you would expect a loving Father to. And as a church, on the face of it, we have been held back. Over the last two years, we have lost people. We've Things that we've, there's things that we've not done. There's, there's, there's people that we've not reached that we had hoped we would do, but we couldn't do anything about it. And so as we stand in the first steps of a new year, hopefully one where we move into a new chapter of life in Scotland, not marked out by restrictions and fear anymore, We don't wallow in what might have been. We trust in what God might be doing through all of this. You know, this passage tells us that we, that that, this passage tells us that God can use miserable things like lockdowns and fear to create new and fruitful opportunities for the gospel. He can use these things to stir up His people to tell others about the gospel because God is always in control of the mission. And that is as true for us today here in Bankery as it was for these persecuted Christians scattered into Judea and Samaria. Do you believe that? We must believe that. Or what are we in this for? You think it's all riding on us, on our good planning? God is always in control of the mission. Well, Acts chapter 8 focuses on a man named Philip. We met him in chapter 6. He was one of the seven men who were appointed to help oversee the distribution of, of practical care in the church. But we see that he wasn't just a practical guy. Philip was a preacher And Philip has a remarkable experience right through chapter 8. We're going to see more of him next week as well. He is scattered into a city in Samaria, and it's here we see God's mission in unlikely places. Here we find Philip preaching to an unlikely audience. The inhabitants of Samaria were called Samaritans, and that's important here. Samaria was the region north of Judea. Judea is the place where Jerusalem was. But the importance is not in the geography. It's in the ethnic history of the Samaritans. You see, up to this point in the book of Acts, all of the converts to Christianity were Jews. Sure, they came from different backgrounds, but they were all Jews. The Jews and the Samaritans, they were they were related. They could, 
they could uh, trace their heritage back to Abraham. They had that shared father in common. But the Samaritans were regarded by the Jews as a mongrel race. They'd spoiled their heritage by intermarrying with people from other nations. And it wasn't so much the genetic dilution that was the problem, it was the spiritual dilution that was the problem. They had their own religion now. They had their own unique place of worship. They had their own views on what were holy books and what weren't. They had different expectations about what the the, the Messiah would bring. He would come to tell them and explain to them things, but not do much else. And because of this, they were hated by the Jews. And so this is why when Jesus tells the story of the good Samaritan, it's extremely provocative to a Jewish audience because they couldn't imagine Samaritans doing anything good, you see. And so this is an unlikely audience that Philip the Jew preaches to. He goes scattered into Samaria and he preaches the gospel to the old enemy, if we could put it like that. But look at what happens. The Samaritans are transfixed by Philip. Notice they they pay attention to what he says because they saw the signs that he did. You see that in verse 6. And Luke describes for us that this included casting out unclean spirits. This is uh, removing, you know, casting out demons from people. The lame were made to walk. And this is another confirmation of what we've seen repeatedly in this history of the early church, that these amazing signs that the Lord was doing through his representatives, they did have a clear purpose of drawing people's attention to the message that God's people carried. It was as if they had this this verifying, this confirming power in the ministry of the church here. And so there was much joy in the city. That's what's recorded in verse 8. God had come to visit them. Of course, the healings brought joy, but Luke, who writes this history for us, he shows us the most most profound effect here was in their response to the Word of God that was preached. And you see this down in verse 12. When they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. What had Philip preached to them? Well, it says there he had preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. This is great. This is a great detail. Because many Jews in the first century could find no room in the kingdom of God for Samaritans. They had sold their birthrights. And yet Philip comes into Samaria and he says, the kingdom of God, the place where he rules over his people, it has come. And it's good news for you because it includes you. All of their lives they had been told by their neighbors, the Jews, that they were excluded. And now comes Philip the Jew to say, the kingdom of God has come, and it's for you. 
through Jesus Christ. You can draw near to God. You can belong to his kingdom. And you can only do that through his son whom he sent. You see, what had barred the Samaritans, as we said, was not their ethnicity. It was not their DNA. What barred them from God's kingdom is the same thing that bars every one of us from God's kingdom. Sin. We were made for our Creator, but we have all turned away from God. We have all, in effect, devised our own little system of worship instead, one that puts us at the center rather than Him, one that insists on things being done our way, not His way, and one that will worship whatever we choose to worship almost so long as it's not God. And so this is how we end up in the situation where the praise of people is more important to us than honoring God. The accumulation of wealth is more important to us than honoring God. Satisfying our physical desires is more important to us than honoring God. This is sin. To turn away from God, to rebel against them. The truth is we could not be less like God, though we tried. And it is this sin that cuts us off and makes us the most unlikely companion of God because we are everything that He is not. But as unlikely as it seems, God loves sinners. Philip reached to these outcasts and he told them that the kingdom of God was good news for them, all because of Jesus Christ. He could tell them that God had sent his son, that Messiah had come, Jesus, and had come to restore, to reconcile outcast sinners to a holy God. Jesus came to remove our sin, to break down every barrier between us and God. He came as one of us, lived a life of holiness to God, and suffered and died the death that sinners deserve, and rose from the dead so that all who come to Him in faith, turning from sin, believing that Jesus did all that for them, who did all that in my place, did everything that I need to trust God, to be right with God, then He's yours. Forgiveness is yours because Jesus is yours. A relationship with God is yours because Jesus is yours. And that's exactly what happened in Samaria. And it's exactly what needs to happen in the lives of every one of us. Jew, Gentile, Samaritan, whatever label you might choose to take. This message of Jesus is good news for you. The kingdom of God has come and it's for you to be part of in Jesus Christ. What's remarkable about this passage is that as Philip has preached the good news to this unlikely audience, it leads to an unlikely union. And we see this when Peter and John arrive. And if we can kind of skip down to, to verse 14, this is where Peter and John come in. Word gets back to the apostles who are still in Jerusalem that Samaria had received the word of God. 
And something unusual happens here. Um, if, if you were to read Acts chapter 2 again, you find that the Jews who became Christians on that occasion, they believed and they were baptized and they received the Holy Spirit. It's pretty clear that's not how things happened here in Samaria. They believed, they were baptized, but for whatever reason, they hadn't received the Holy Spirit. He had not come on them. And when you get to Acts chapter 10, we're going to find there that the gospel goes to a new group of people, to to Gentiles, to to fully non-Jewish people. And the pattern changes again, that as the gospel is preached, the Holy Spirit comes and fills them before they're baptized. There's no, no definite pattern here. No, what God is doing here is, is something out of the ordinary, and He does that to make a particular point. This is not recorded here to tell us that this is somehow a normal thing to expect, that becoming a Christian and having the Holy Spirit are somehow two separate stages of the Christian life. There's not, there's not any hint that we're to see this as normal here. No, the significance is in, in what this forces the apostles in Jerusalem to do. It brings them from Jerusalem into Samaria to see with their own eyes what God has done. You see, such was the depth of division between Jews and Samaritans that these Jewish apostles needed to come and see it for themselves. And the significance there in verse 17, I don't think we can overstate. It says, then Peter and John laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Laid their hands on them. What a significant moment. For centuries, there had been this animosity between Jews and Samaritans. And what is it that, that can, can, can take that animosity away? It is the gospel. They had come to trust in Jesus, and the Jew can put his hand on the Samaritan brother in Christ and say, we are one. That's the significance. It symbolizes their oneness, their union together. And so the Samaritans received the same Holy Spirit whom the Jewish Christians had received. They really are one in Christ. This is powerful. And God, in His wisdom, by ordering things this way, way, ensured that from the very start there would be no doubt, no debate about the validity of Samaritans coming into the church. No, the apostles had seen with their own eyes and embraced them with their own hands. And this is to remain the beauty of the church. This message about Jesus brings together people from all sorts of backgrounds, different ethnicities, nationalities, different levels of wealth, of wealth different employment histories, different intelligence levels, and, and, and people with lives messed up in a whole variety of ways, brought together into a family United not by all of those other things, but united by Jesus Christ, whom we've all come to trust in. But we cannot leave this part of of Acts 8 without discussing this character, Simon. The message 
here, of, of the, the story of Simon is, is a story of the dangers of having a misunderstood message. Because really, Simon is a fly in the ointment of this happy story in Samaria. A much happier story if we just left him out. Why couldn't we just have finished with there was much joy in the city? Verse 8, that's, that was Luke's report. And the first word of verse 9 is important. But... There was much joy in the city, but you see, we're taking a different direction here. But there was a man named Simon. Now, Simon was a local celebrity. He was a magician. He had convinced the people by whatever means that he was wielding some impressive power. He called himself somebody great so that all the Samaritans in the city paid attention to him. And what did they say of him? Verse 10, this man is the power of God that is called great. They paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. Simon held these people in the palm of his hand. He'd convinced them that that he was the closest thing to the divine that they could ever see. And it's interesting that twice there in what I read to you, it says they paid attention to him. And that highlights what the problem is, because in verse 6, Luke told us the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. Their attention had shifted from Simon to God's messenger, Philip. And that's why we come to another but in verse 12. They were mesmerized by Simon, but when they believed Philip as he preached the good news, they were baptized, both men and women. Their baptism was a declaration that they had new allegiance to Jesus Christ. That's what someone's doing when they're getting baptized. They are declaring their allegiance to Jesus Christ. They had changed direction. They were moving away from Simon. They followed Jesus And verse 13 at first is hugely encouraging, isn't it? Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. Seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, if this was the end of of Simon's story, we would simply, all that would be for me to say is, say, look, even someone who thought he was God, someone who practiced the dark arts can be saved by the gospel. And that is still a true message. But that is not where Simon's story finishes. Because when we see his encounter and his interaction with Peter, we see that Simon has actually misunderstood something really important. Simon sees when Peter and John come, he sees the greatest power he's ever witnessed, the power of the Holy Spirit coming upon people. And seemingly, to his eyes, Peter and John seem to wield that power. They lay hands on the Samaritans, and God's Holy Spirit comes. And Simon knows true power when he sees it. He sees this as a power that far surpasses anything that he could conjure up. If he could only harness that power, then who knows, maybe that title of great would be his again. And what does he do? He even offers the apostles money. 
in exchange for training in the art of the power of the Holy Spirit. Peter is horrified, and his words are important. I'm going to read them again. Peter says, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Safe to say Peter told him what he thought. What does Peter see in Simon? He sees someone who has been more amazed by the signs and the miracles than he has been about the Savior. More dazzled by the outward displays of power than by Jesus Christ himself. Peter sees that Simon's heart is filled with bitter envy towards those whom he thinks are more powerful than him. He sees in Simon someone who now sees Jesus as a means of simply exalting himself. Simon seems eager to join in with this Jesus movement, but only so he can tap into its power and impress the people of the city again. It is still all about Simon. It's all about Simon being the great power of God. And the solution that Peter proclaims to this man is the same thing Philip would have been preaching in Samaria. Verse 22, repent, turn around, turn away from this wicked demeanor of yours and pray to the Lord. Pray for forgiveness. And I think there's a tragedy here that even after Peter has given him this most blunt of diagnoses, and given him the remedy, Simon still seems not to get it. Because he doesn't do what Peter says, does he? Simon doesn't pray to the Lord to seek forgiveness. What does Simon do instead? He says, Peter, you pray to the Lord for me. Why would he do that? Why would he not pray himself? Well, we've begun to see how this man thinks, haven't we? Peter is the man who has power. And so Simon says to the man who has power, you speak to God for me and ask that these things won't happen. Simon has not understood. And his experience does seem strange to us, doesn't it? How could he go from bursting with enthusiasm, seeming genuine belief to this? But in another sense, this is something that shouldn't surprise us, because this is exactly the sort of response that the Lord Jesus specifically warned his followers to expect among people when the gospel is proclaimed. You may have heard before the parable of the, of the farmer, the sower. He sows seed liberally in his land. Some falls on the path and it doesn't achieve anything. Some falls on rocky places. It springs up quickly, but because it has no root, it withers away. Some fall among thorns 
and it begins to grow, but the thorns choke it down? Well, here's Jesus' explanation of what happens when the seed of the Word meets hearts like that. He says, the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the Word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while and in times of testing fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear. But as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. And this seems to be what we see in Simon, right? No reason to doubt the genuineness of his enthusiasm when we're told he believed and he was baptized. He jumps up, he sprouts forth really quickly. But that enthusiasm masks a deep misunderstanding of what the good news about Jesus really is. It was not all about him. It's not about giving a glorious platform to anyone else other than Jesus Christ. He is the only one who gets to be glorified. And the true believer understands that, that it's Jesus who is the centerpiece. And unless we've come to that place, unless that's why we follow Jesus, because we've come to see how wonderful He is, we've come to see how much He loves us. But if my faith is all about me and what I can get from it and how I can get other people to think of me, then I have a selfish faith, one that places me at the center. Heaven forbid. But how hard this is for us And particularly in our culture of celebrity and influencers, it's hard not to think that what might boost the church's popularity in the UK is if if a certain celebrity became a Christian. Just imagine what that would do for us. But that's a mistake. Because the call of Jesus is a call to come and to die to yourself, to deny yourself, and to follow Him It's not about trying to have the best roll call of the smartest, richest, most respected followers of Jesus. No, it is about coming in weakness and asking Jesus to be big. John the Baptist would say, he must increase and I must decrease. Simon seems to have the opposite philosophy here. The church is not a place where Christians jostle for position. It's the place where God is worshipped where we submit ourselves to Him again, and where we seek His strength to live as a child of God. The church is the place where we become small and where Jesus is big. Because every true Christian realizes that when God sent Jesus to be their Savior, Whatever you may be, whatever position you may hold in life, every believer realizes that when God sent Jesus to be their Savior, when that good news came to you, it was God's mission in an unlikely place. We deserved nothing. And yet in Jesus, God offers us everything. Same for you here today. This is the day when the Lord is calling you to come to Him in faith, to trust Him, not to trust yourself, not to trust that you've got 
some head start on someone else to come in all of your sinful unworthiness and to trust that Jesus can forgive your sins, can bring you back to God. And for us, if you are here today, if you are a Christian, it is to keep coming back to that, to be humbled again, to say, how could Jesus love a sinner like me? And to praise him and to ask that he would indeed be big in this place, in your life, in this community. Because it does seem unlikely that some great work of God is going to break out in our society, doesn't it? But praise God, God is the God who works and does his mission in unlikely places, even in you. Amen. Just to say before we close, um, if anyone has been challenged by anything that's been mentioned today or or would appreciate prayer, um, I'm going to be down in this corner for a little while after the service. Please do come and speak to me. And please do stay for tea and coffee. Um, And just a reminder, once you've collected your tea and coffee, find yourself a seat at a table to consume it. That would be a big help. And to close, let's say the words of the grace together. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen and amen. Thank you.